0: passages like this, includes very human, very moving moments in the life of Jesus and his followers. We thank you for the picture that this gives us of simple care, love, compassion. And we pray that we would then be imitators of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed this as an adult. As an adult, it is difficult to get genuine comfort. Like as a kid, you know, you, can, you could skin your knee and cry about it without shame and be comforted. You know, there are people that will come around you and say, you know, yes, the world is a terrible place, and, but your knee is gonna be fine and we love you and here's a Snoopy Band-Aid. I can't find Snoopy Band-Aids anymore but they used to exist, you can get, as a kid, it's easy, you have easy access to comfort, but as an adult, you lose that ability. You, it's shameful to cry or complain or be weak in public. It's hard to be comforted as an adult, um, even by your kids. I was, uh, la- this was last year, I stepped in this uh, this beehive, and I got stung by three or four bees, and I went to the person who I know would bring me greatest comfort, because just the previous day, Kate, my youngest, had gotten stung by a bee at the pool, and so I felt like she could understand my pain, and I went to her, and I said, I got stung by like three or four bees, and she goes, deal with it. <laughs> like, it's, it's hard as an adult to get genuine comfort, because you're supposed to, like, that's what becoming a man or becoming a woman means. It means dealing with it. It means dealing with life. And yet, we need comfort. We need our mamas to sing us to sleep again. We, we need, that when the brokenness of life hits us and when tragedy crashes down upon us, we instinctively want somewhere to go. We want someone who understands. And the reason is, is because when catastrophe strikes, when our world is shattered, We something actually good happens, something good and beautiful happens, something that's God-designed happens. When our world is shattered, God shows us something about ourselves that we don't like to think about. He shows us that we're fragile, that we're needy. He shows us that we are weak. He shows us that we need strength and that we don't have it. And so our instinct is to find strength, to find somebody to lean on, to find a shoulder to cry on, because that is how we get by in a broken world. We need a mother's comfort. We need to be comforted. And yet, as many of us know, that is not only hard to find, sometimes when you seek comfort, you seek it in the wrong places. The person that you thought would be there for you, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a good friend, a co-worker, a colleague. That person that you thought would be there and would understand doesn't. And you realize all the more how fragile we really are. Where will we go for comfort? The good news of our passage, the good news that we read about throughout the Gospels, but that reaches a kind of crescendo here in John 19, is that Jesus is the greatest comforter. That Jesus brings a kind of comfort that you cannot receive in this world, that Jesus meets that need. In fact, we could talk about the entirety of what Jesus did as a kind of cosmic comforting. He is entering into the brokenness of the world, the The fractured world in which we live, and He's entering into it, experiencing all of it for what it is, and then bringing the kind of comfort that only He can bring. That is what the ministry of Jesus Christ is about. And what's striking about this passage is that the comfort that is described here is twofold. Jesus is the one who brings us comfort, but notice that the comfort here, the comfort that is offered here, is twofold. On the one hand, Jesus is the one being comforted, and because Jesus is the one being comforted, Jesus is able to comfort. Let's consider both of those ideas this morning. First, we need to understand, and this is important to understand even though it's going to sound a little bit counterintuitive perhaps at first. We need to understand that Jesus is the one who is comforted, that Jesus Needs and receives comfort. Now, putting it that way might make some of uh, the true Presbyterians in the room squirm a little bit. What, what do we mean when we, say, when we say Jesus needs something? That should make us feel a little antsy, right? Because he is the one who upholds the world by the word of his power. How would such a one ever need anything? How do we describe things that Jesus needs? One of the things that happens as we rightly emphasize the divine nature of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God, one of the things that can happen when we do that, it's a good emphasis, we don't want to lose that emphasis, Jesus didn't become God, he is God from all time, Hebrews 1, John 1, he is God, but while emphasizing that, we don't want to miss the point that he's also fully man, that he enters fully into what it means to be a human being, that Jesus then, as the God-man, the person Christ, needs food, he needs an education, he needs to learn to read, he needs things. It's actually in the Gnostic Gospels where you find um, this kind of uh, otherworldly picture of Jesus Christ, so Jesus pops out and he's reading and talking and doing things, he's able to Uh, build a carpentry table just straight uh, as a little baby infant. So it's in the Gnostic Gospels where we find stuff like that. Our faith, our belief, our confession is that Jesus was a genuine human being, and he lived as such. Jesus, therefore, experienced situations in which he had the common human experience of needing to be comforted. This is not intended to be complicated or high theology. It's just recognizing something that we sometimes forget. Jesus was in situations in which comfort was needed and hoped for. And Jesus, like us, sometimes receives that comfort and sometimes doesn't. So you remember uh, in the chapter before this one in John, Jesus goes up uh, to Gethsemane to pray, right? He's praying, and he brings his closest friends. He brings his closest friends on that mountain, and he says, I need you to pray for me right now. I need you to be here. I need you to beseech the Lord on my behalf. I need you with me, because I'm going to do something that's very hard. I'm going to be leaving this world. I'm going to be facing the wrath of my father. I need you to pray with me. And they let him down. They let him down big time, right? They're not there for him. His closest disciples not only fail to pray, but fall asleep. And then, as if to add insult to this very real injury, they leave him. So that when, when Jesus, at that moment when he needs them most, at that moment when support would be most helpful, As soon as Jesus forsakes the sword and accepts Roman imprisonment, as soon as that happens, it's as if a light goes off in the disciples' head. And they realize that Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, I have to go and I have to die. And they don't want anything to do with that kind of savior. Mark runs away. Peter denies Jesus three times. They leave him. Jesus needs comfort and they're not there for. Jesus has that basic of human experiences of needing and not receiving the comfort desired. Our passage is in strike contrast to that. What we find in our passage is Jesus receiving comfort in something of an unexpected place. You, you need to know a little bit about how uh, the the practice of crucifixion works in the ancient world to kind of get this it is not at all obvious that Jesus would have friends and family around the cross crucifixion isn't uh, to put it mildly it's not like a wedding it's not a it's not an event at which you come and participate okay it's not a last rites it's not the uh, you know it's not a hospital visit this is this is the kind of event that the Romans set up specifically to shame the, pe- the people around them, the people, the criminal or the rebel, and all that are around them. It's actually a dangerous thing to be a follower, a friend, or a family member at a crucifix. It's an easy way to identify who's next. It does seem, uh, if you consult some of the historical records, it does seem that uh, soldiers tend to look the other way when it came to family members. But the fact that they had to look the other way, the fact that they had to kind of pretend they're not there is an indication itself of the danger, of the risk. So Mary, Mary, and uh, the wife, uh, the sister of Mary, these women and John, being there, being at the cross, and being so close is a big deal. It is not a sure thing. And what drives Mary there, what drives Mary, the mother of Jesus, to this place is clearly the love that she bears for her son. She is there in a terrible, terrifying, difficult moment knowing the painful loss that she's about to experience. She is there in order to bring Comfort, in order to support, in order to show solidarity. That's why these women are here. The disciples, doesn't appear that most of the disciples are here, but these women are here and they are here to show solidarity. Jesus receives the comfort of his family in an unexpected place. This is good news, okay? We, the fact that Jesus receives this kind of comfort, the fact that Jesus needs comfort and that he receives it. First from his mother and then, we need to make this point, and then from his heavenly father. That the resurrection is this final comforting event. It is the moment in which God says finally and completely and without any qualification, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is comforted in his resurrection from the dead. The fact that Jesus needs comfort and receives it is good news for us because it means he knows where the good comfort lies. It means he knows what he's doing. He is going to be the great comforter, and he understands it from the inside out. You can go to him in expectation of receiving exactly what you need in your moment of trial because he has experienced these things. He knows what it's like not to receive comfort, and he knows what it's like to receive final, ultimate, perfect comfort from God himself. Jesus then is comforted, but the real point here in this passage and uh, for us this morning is that Jesus comforts. Jesus is mothered, but Jesus also mothers, to put it that way. In fact, I was asked over the uh, youth retreat, one of the, we have a question and answer time uh, that's uh, kind of an ask anything time for the students. And one of the students asked, why does the Bible always use male terms for God? Why does it exclusively talk about God uh, as a man, like as a father? And my first instinct was to say, oh, it's because of this. But then I had to check myself because actually the premise isn't true, right? The Bible doesn't always speak about God the Father, as a father. Um, in the passages throughout spread throughout uh, this bulletin, God consistently and repeatedly refers to himself as a mother. So on the front of the bulletin, uh, Jesus tells Israel, "I would gather you as a hen, gathers her brood under her wings." In Isaiah 66 God says, can a nursing mother forget its nursing child. Neither will I forget you. I will bring you, Isaiah 49, the promise of forgiveness. Uh, excuse me, that was, uh, that was the, uh, the previous one. I will give you the kind of comfort that only a mother can give, as one whom his mother comforts, verse 13. So I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Why does the Bible use sometimes male, usually male, but sometimes female, ways of describing God? Well, I think we can recognize, even in our own day in which a lot of those social barriers have been torn down, that if you want comfort uh, and sympathy, it's usually a good idea to go to your mom first, right? Because dad might say, you know, buck up. There are, God is trying to teach us something about himself. He's trying to teach us that he's like a father, but he's also trying to teach us that he's like a mother, that he brings comfort in its time, that he is skilled at it, like a good mother is skilled at bringing comfort. For some of us, this this might be, language like this can be hard to hear. You know, if you grew up with a father who was abusive or a mother who was cold and you hear language, you hear God describing himself as a father or a mother, that that normal, that natural tendency to understand and to hear these things as good things that's kind of broken down, it's difficult to hear. And yet, even in those instances, we, we know what the ideal should be. We know what a good father, a good mother looks like. We understand it somewhat intuitively. And we can go to the Word, and we can find Jesus... And Jesus' Heavenly Father offers us comfort. That's what Jesus does in our passage in John 19. He sees his mother, appreciates her presence, and then brings her comfort. He takes care of her. And the immediate question is, why? And of course, the obvious answer is, because she's his mom. Jesus takes care, he has this extraordinary act of love, but at one level we recognize that this is kind of an ordinary act of love. He is seeking to care for his mother in a particularly trying time. There's an important point there, of course, and it's that point that we say, when even when we're having difficulties with our parents, where we say something like, but she's my mom, or she's my dad, like we get that that relationship has attached to it certain priorities that exist regardless of how good or bad a parent that were they were, but Jesus. Is, here's what I want us to see: Jesus's care for his mom is actually goes deeper than that. It goes more deeper, more deeply than the parent-child relationship. There's actually something else going on here. In fact, if you're reading this passage and you're really trying to think about the details of it, you might notice some things that you didn't notice before. For example. Why uh, does Jesus give his mom over to John and not, say, Jude or James, Jesus' brothers? Jesus, the, the expectation from an Old Testament perspective is that when something like this happens, when the eldest is taking care of his mother that she would go into the next eldest son's care. But that's not what happens. Why does Jesus not rely on James or Jude? Why does he call her woman and not mother? What's he trying to, see there are hints in this passage that there's something else going on here, that Jesus' care for his mother flows not just from the fact that she's his mother, but from some deeper and more fundamental principle. And it's actually been going on throughout the entire book of John. If you, we don't get a lot about Mary in the Gospels. We get a little bit, and the little bit we get is really helpful and encouraging. But we don't get a lot. But if you trace what we do get, for example, in the book of John, what you'll find is as soon as Jesus enters into public ministry, his relationship with his mother gets sort of retooled a bit. Some of you are having this experience right now with your kids who are going off to college, right? There's this transition period where your relationship with your kids shifts a bit. They're now adults in their own right and you can't command them anymore. Um, And yet they're not quite fully grown and they still need you and they still want you. The relationship shifts, shifts a bit. Jesus, because of who he is and because of the call that's placed on him, sees a similar but even more stark kind of shift in his own public ministry. So remember the wedding at Cana, what happens? Mary says, fix this. You know, there's, we've only got water, we don't have any more wine, fix this problem. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? He places himself subtly, I think respectfully in the end, though that language, uh, it strikes us as a little bit uh, more pejorative. It wasn't meant that way in the ancient world. But what he does is he places himself above his mother. He says, these concerns, these family level concerns, these, I have bigger concerns now. I have a bigger issue to take care of. He places himself above his mother in a subtle, but nevertheless clear way. In John six, you'll remember that the people are grumbling. They're saying, why is this Jesus so important? What, what does he think of himself so highly And Jesus says, uh, why does Jesus think of himself so highly? We have his mother and his brothers right here. We know who they are. And Jesus responds by saying, who are my mothers and my brothers but those who do the will of God? Jesus is redefining his family a bit. He is establishing that his closest ties, that his most fundamental uh, caretaking unit, is not his immediate family, but his sheep. He's telling Mary, he's telling his brothers, he's telling John that I am not just your brother, I'm your Lord. I am not just your son, I am your shepherd. I mean, you think your family dynamics are kind of uh, kind of odd. He imagine this. To be Mary, to approach Jesus as your son and your Lord. And yet it's precisely that, that dynamic that we see going on by Jesus on the cross. He is taking care of Mary, not just as a son, not just filial care, but he is taking care of her spiritually. We don't think at this point, Jesus' brothers believed in him, they'd rejected him. And so why John? Because John, cousin by the way, is the closest believing relative who can take up the mantle. He is taking care, he is, he is showing extraordinary care for his mother, but he's taking care of her, not just her body, but her spirit, her soul. He's caring for her as a shepherd, cares for his little lamb, not just as a son cares for his mom. And it's that same care, see it's at this point where we can look at the care that Jesus offers to Mary in her time of need. Jesus who on the cross is suffering more pain and suffering than any have ever experienced because he is not only feeling the physical pain, but the wrath of God to be poured out against him. Jesus, at this moment, when he is most needy, takes time to care for his mother. Why? Because she's his mom, but because she's a sheep. As are you. Jesus offers to us extraordinary levels of compassion, care, and comfort. And he asks from us only one thing, to go to him and receive it. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Now that's hard to do. It requires thinking of oneself as a little lamb, as an infant child. It requires hearing Jesus say, bring the children unto me, and thinking, I'm going to." That's a difficult, humbling step to make. It requires us to admit our frailty. It requires us to admit that though we have stock accounts and we pay taxes and we have uh, a, a car that keeps us safe, and though we have done so much in our life to make sure that we are not fragile, we are not like children, it requires us admitting that we are in fact and that we need the comfort that only Christ can bring. The call of this passage, young and old, is to humble ourselves that we might be comforted. To receive the comfort that only Jesus Christ can bring. To receive it by becoming like a child. Not childish, but childlike prayers. Childlike faith. Childlike hope. Dreaming big as children dream, and finding in Christ a sympathetic high priest. Let's pray.